0: The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumba. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. we're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Ah, 9, nine.
1: You need to spend more time here with your family. Oh, where are you going? Be back before dinner. Be careful out there. No boy. You got it covered. Bye. I just want to escape. Dad always wanted me to travel the world.
2: Someday. (gasps)
1: There's a Yeti on my roof. Today, DreamWorks Animation and China's Pearl Studio open Abominable a story that follows an independent teen named Yi, voiced by Chloe Bennett, who embarks on a journey to Mount Everest after she meets and befriends a young Yeti. The movie's writer and director is Jill Colton, who talked with us about the making of the movie during a recent visit to DreamWorks Animation. We discussed topics including how Jill created this strong female protagonist, a stylized look at China, the casting choices, as well as the state of diversity in the animation community. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Jill Colton's career has included numerous films at Pixar, where she worked on titles including Toy Story and Toy Story 2, before making her feature directorial debut with Sony Pictures Animation's open season. Her latest film, Abominable, opens today. Jill, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Carolyn. Thanks for having me. So the movie tells the story of Yee, which you wrote. Tell us about the idea for the story
2: and um, what you wanted to convey. You know, this story has a lot of things in it that are very personal to me. It's a director's dream come true to be able to write a movie and direct it and to have a subject matter like a Yeti, which is what the studio wanted, that was a blank slate. So they wanted a Yeti movie and basically let me fill in the blanks. So it was really important to me to have a really strong female lead character. You know, growing up as a kid, there was mostly princess movies out there for animated films. And for me, a tomboy growing up in Ventura, skateboarding, surfing, <laughs> camping, I really couldn't relate to those movies so much. And so I just thought I really wanted to create a character who is independent, strong, the kind of character who kind of leaps before they look and gets themselves into trouble sometimes. She's also the one that, along the journey, isn't afraid to sleep in the woods or get dirty. And I love that about this character. And so she's kind of the role model I always wish I had growing up. So that was kind of the idea behind Yi as a main character. And I wanted her to go on a journey and really have to grapple with issues in her life. I mean, sometimes these films have a a bit of humor, but I really, it was important to me to have a strong meaning, have something the main character really has to get over and deal with that's important and serious, you know.
1: So when we meet Yi, who lives in China, her adventure begins when she goes up to her rooftop and she's surprised to find that there's a Yeti hiding there. Right.
2: So what's so great about this is like every kid that I know, including myself, always wanted a secret fort, right? And so she has what we see in Yi's bedroom is that her bedroom is very blank, but when she goes up to her rooftop we see a fort up there that she's created and it's colorful and it's got you know a map of all the places she wants to visit in China and she goes up there at nighttime usually to play her violin in private um, over the city lights spilling behind her and she comes across of course surprisingly a Yeti on her rooftop and I remember taking a story class at one point and they were saying sometimes it's great to think of the most unexpected place to find something or get yourself into a difficult situation that's hard to get out of. And when I was thinking about where ye should find that yeti, I thought, what if she just finds him in the middle of the city? (laughs) And it's such an opposite place than the Himalayas where they're going to end up. The city is so full of people and lights and sounds, especially these futuristic cities in China. They're so full of neon and animated signs. And It's a beautiful city. Were there any real cities that it was modeled after? It was modeled after Shanghai, but it's not Shanghai. And I think we just wanted to give ourselves a little bit of wiggle room so that we didn't have to stick specifically to, you know, the streets and everything of, of Shanghai. But... I just love the idea that she finds this Yeti in such an inappropriate, weird place, you know, it kind of shocks the audience. And then we have to kind of put the pieces together later. Where did he come from? How did he get to the city? So all these things you find out as the movie unfolds, this mystery of why she found him on that rooftop. So thus begins her journey to take Everest, the name of the Yeti, back home to the Himalayas. Right. And again, it's this, when I start to write these things, you know, I got a giant map of China, I put it on my wall. And I was thinking, you know, what could this journey be? We have the Himalayas on one side. We have, again, Shanghai was the model for this city. And it's, you know, 3,000 kilometers away. And there's so, you have to cross the entire country pretty much to get to the Himalayas. And I was thinking, okay, great. So I have these two bookends, you know, the beauty, the organic horizontal plane of the Himalayas that's all white and sky. And you have the verticals and the neon lights and the sounds and everything of the city. So these are great opposites to take us on a wonderful journey. And then as I did my research, what I discovered was China is just so diverse and so beautiful. Um, As I was looking at the places like that they could travel a, a logical map all the way across. And I think most Westerners know about the big cities in China, they know about the Great Wall, they know about the terracotta soldiers, but they don't know about the Leishan Buddha. They don't know about the Yangtze River Valley or the fields of canola flowers. And I just really wanted to show off that beauty in the places of China that no one really knows about. So let's talk about the journey. So Jin and Peng,
1: two of her friends, also go on this journey. Yeah. And let's talk about some of the locations that you just mentioned
2: where they stop and you had to design each of these. Right, right. Um, yeah, so she she. Marks on this great journey um, with Pang and Jin, and there are two kids that live in her apartment building. And later we find out they've known each other their whole lives. But what I love about the dynamics between Yi and Jin is that they're kids that probably grew up together. And we're close at one point. But just like any kids, when you get to high school, high school is the great divide. (laughs) And so, you know, you can tell that Jen has fallen into the social group and he cares about social media. He cares about his tennis shoes. You know, he cares about his hair. He cares. He's a popular kid. He's a good looking kid. He's going to go to med school, you know, and she's the opposite. You know, she grew up and she's kind of a self-proclaimed loner who likes to do things independently on her own, raise money, you know, doesn't have a big group of friends she hangs out with. And so they've kind of grown apart and what's so great about this movie is that you know when Push comes to shove and Jin, you know, has to let his cell phone go and let, let his shoes get dirty and his hair right. messed up, it pulls them back to that great relationship they used to have. And I just love that about this film because I think it's the relationships, it's it, when you form strong relationships when you're younger, sometimes those really last and you can always call those friends up you know years later it feels like you've just talked the next day so they have that awesome bond in this movie and Pang which I what I love about Pang is that he's Jin's cousin but he is every kid he is in the moment he is up for the adventure he doesn't know how dangerous it will be he doesn't care Um, he is just he's absolutely in the moment and what's great about Pang is that he gets along with Everest so well and they play so well together that this is what actually makes you realize that Everest, even though he's 2,000 pounds, is just a kid. And so it gives her even more drive to get him home because she realizes, you know, there's parents waiting for him or maybe he has a home. And another goal for me in this movie was to set up kind of that theme of home and so We see that Yi is disconnected from her mom and grandma at the beginning of the movie. She doesn't have the perfect home life, but when she discovers Everest on her rooftop, she has a real drive to get him home, to his home and his family. And along this journey, she's going to end up fixing her own home and her own family. So this journey of getting him home and her drive is because secretly she desires that closeness with her family again.
1: Let's talk about a few of the locations that they
2: visit on their journey. Did you have a favorite? My favorite location was really the Le Shum Buddha. That was a landmark I didn't know existed. I stumbled across it in my research and I was just blown away by this impressive Buddha sculpture that's carved straight out of rock and discovered that it's the actually the tallest Buddha in the world. And for me, I grew up in the church. My parents raised me going to church. And there's always that feeling you have, like walking into a church where you, you feel like you're standing on hollow ground and you can't, you have to whisper, you know. And I, I when I saw the image of that Buddha, there was something kind of sacred or hollow ground feeling about it. And when I was writing that, I knew I wanted to use it for a very important scene in the movie. And so when I was writing the sequence where Yi, you know, plays her violin for her dad in this movie, that was the place I, I chose. And I write to music a lot. So whether it's soundtracks or sometimes music, it always helps me with pacing or to get me in the mood of the scene. And for that sequence, I was always listening to Coldplay's Fix you, which the words are tears stream down your face when you lose something you can't replace. And I felt like that was, and I will try to fix you. That's the lyrics. And I felt like Everest does not have a voice in this movie. And I purposefully did that. I didn't want him to be a chatty, <laughs> you know, chatty character. I wanted him to be more animalistic and speak in grunts and groans and things like that. But in this moment, when you're hearing the lyrics and I Will Fix You and he shoves the violin towards ye and, and kind of motions for her to play, it's like Chris Martin from Coldplay is almost being the voice of Everest in that moment, encouraging her to heal. And interestingly enough, the beginning of that, song starts with an organ, a church organ. And so it's, you know, they walk up to the Buddha and you hear this organ play and you just know you're you're on hallowed ground. And so that was kind of the inspiration behind that scene. But it was it's a powerful image. You talk about how Everest doesn't talk
1: in the movie. Um, you had to make him very expressive. Would you talk about the character design and, you know, animating to bring all of that emotion to him? Sure. I mean,
2: Everest, one of the great things about him is you always pull stuff, or I do, a lot of times inspiration from your own life. And I think that gives more grounding to the story because you're relating it to your own truth. And for me, I've always had giant dogs in my life. (laughs) So I've had Great Danes. Right now I have a giant 100-pound bloodhound. And I've always been fascinated with the nonverbal communication you can have with your pets. I mean, my dog knows, you know, if I stand up and I'm leaving, he runs through the door, he tells me when he's hungry, I know when he's, you know, angry, I know when he's happy, and there's no kind of gap in communication between our, our really our pets, I think, you know, if you're, if you're a pet lover. So I really wanted to capture that kind of nonverbal communication with Everest and Yi, that just through simple grunts and groans, she can understand him, and they have a full relationship and a full ability to communicate without him having to speak English. It, that was kind of the beginning inspiration, but what I also love is, you know, I spent a decade as an animator, and Everest's design is very different from other Yetis that you've seen. I think a lot of times you picture Yetis because you've seen the footprints, that they stand upright and walk, you know, on two legs like a man in a suit, <laughs> kind of. That's the typical Bigfoot, typical Yeti. and Working with our character designer, Nico Marley, who designed How to Train Your Dragon and Kung Fu Panda, I just wanted the Yeti to move differently. And so we decided to make him so that he could walk on fours or twos or roll up in a big snowball. And that gives the animators a lot more flexibility to act, really, because he can do anything. You know, he's very pliable. And so it was a big challenge for the animators to, you know, in combination with Everest not speaking English and only having grunts and groans and being able to walk on fours or twos to communicate. It was a real challenge for them to be able to make Everest communicate with our main character Yi. However, it was a fun challenge. They all took it on and they just love this character. So you know, I think we were successful in making that relationship feel kind of seamless.
1: Now when Yi, you cast Chloe Bennett,
2: who is Chinese American. Why did you choose her for the role? You know, she has such a unique voice. She has this kind of grit and gravel to her voice that's unexpected. It captures that kind of tomboy spirit just even in her voice. But, you know, it was important for us to actually cast someone who was Chinese in the main role. But more so, you know, Chloe grew up in Shanghai. And so she knows that kind of futuristic city that we were basing all this on. She has a love for dogs, I should say. She's got um, multiple brothers and sisters. She can understand that relationship between Pang and Jin. But really, what I've appreciated about her through this process is I've discovered what a fantastic actor she really is. When you do voiceover for animation, it's quite vulnerable because you don't have hair and makeup. You're not in a location. You're in a recording studio and it's just you and the microphone and the director. And so it's your voice. It's all about acting. And she was so willing to just go anywhere with me. (laughs) And there's some really emotional scenes that we recorded multiple times and, you know, we'd workshop it, which is, you know, I wrote the script, but I'd come over and say, let's try it this way. Let's try it this way. What sounds more natural to you? And we kind of workshop the script and in this one incredibly emotional sequence in a bamboo grove, where she's talking to Jen about her family. After a couple times of recording, I said, you got it. Let's just throw the script away. Now just tell me the story. Just tell the story and she had tears pouring down her face and she did these beautiful little stumbles and trying to find her words and it was so natural. I had tears dip coming down my face and th- these are the kind of actors you just die to work with cuz she's she was so vulnerable and that performance really shows in this movie. She feels like a real character really going through these things and I can't say enough about her she's great Since you first conceived the story
1: the studio and the project went through some iterations uh, and I know ye wasn't always a female there was a point where <laughs> right. um, where that changed would you tell us about the progression of making the movie
2: sure I mean I actually started this film about seven years ago and wrote the film and was directing it and he was actually younger at that point she was nine years old and there wasn't a Jin and pang involved and for various the studio went through many changes I should say one of them is they DreamWorks was sold to Universal and there was a new set of executives involved in this, and different development went on. And so I was off the movie for a little bit of a time, and it went through story changes, like you became a boy at some point. I wasn't here for that. I think the violin became a guitar at one point. But then about 18 months ago, I was asked to come back and retell my version of the story. So I came back, and the addition of Pang and Jin has been a really great addition. And we we aged her up, and, and this was on purpose, partially because I wanted her to be able to work. You can't work in China unless you're 16. Jin needed to be 18 just for them to appropriately go across China as young adults <laughs> without a chaperone. <laughs> and I think making them teenagers actually gave me more to work with just as far as, like, teenagers are always going through things in their life. And I think with Yi, that kind of pulling away from her mom and grandma is also a very teenager thing that you, you want to kind of keep everything to yourself and deal with things on your own. And he is going to learn in the end she she needs to open up and embrace her family. And that's such... I went through that as a teenager as well. So some of these things change and grow. That's how stories develop. And, you know, I think this is the best version of this story. So I'm glad I got to come back and, you know, embrace the original version. It was great.
1: why is he making that... Is he humming? Whoa! Is that uh... a blueberry? Phone! This was a co-production between DreamWorks Animation and Pearl in China. To what extent did Pearl work with you on the cultural aspects, and did you additionally do research trips to China? Tell us a bit about
2: that. Well, I've been to China quite a few times. I haven't been to every location in the movie, which hopefully I will get to someday. I would love to stand and—, and You have your own map now. <laughs> That's right. I have my own map, and I would love to— see the Himalayas. That's one place that I would love to visit. But yeah, we we were a co-production with Pearl Studios and Pearl Studios is located in Shanghai and there is a whole group of artists working there. We worked with them on a regular basis and they helped us really make sure the authenticity of the city was right. And again, even though it's just based on Shanghai, there's certain things, whether it's, you know, in China, they don't have paper bags, they have plastic bags, or they don't have metal trash cans, they have rubber trash cans, or just, you know, food carts on the street and things that you don't, normally see, especially here in Los Angeles, right? So they helped us design that city. They also helped us with cultural behavioral things, you know, for example, there's a dinner at the very end of the movie and just, I mean, this sounds weird, but just how much food is on there or can you hold chopsticks and a pork bun at the same time? And who sits down first? How do you do that in a proper way? It was incredibly important for me to, you know, you do a movie set in China with an all Chinese cast. And I just never wanted anyone watching this who is from that culture to ever be pulled out, you know, of the movie by the fact we didn't do all of our homework and make it feel as authentic as possible. And Pearl Studios really helped with that. So. And what was the collaboration
1: like between the team at DreamWorks
2: Animation and the team at Pearl? You know, the collaboration between us was pretty seamless. You know, we at one point some of their artists came here for a couple months but for the most part they stayed in shanghai and we just communicated with them via emails or skype or whatever we needed to do and they worked directly with my production designer max Boaz. and so a lot of times they would do color keys for certain things so they were great i mean they were so helpful and palin and frank who head up pearl studios they were here on a regular basis and so palin was very involved in the development of the story all along and I met with her on a regular basis, showed her materials and got her thoughts and so they've been incredibly supportive. It's a big movie for them in China as well.
1: Now you have the sole directing and writing credit on this movie. There are still so few women directors in animation. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get started?
2: You know, I've been in this industry for 29 years now, and um, you mentioned that there's so few women, and if you go all the way back to my training, which was at California Institute of the Arts, I was in their animation program, animation and film, and... Out of my class of 90, there was four women in that class. (laughs) And so, and now I'm happy to say 29 years later that CalArts is 60% women. So, you know, hopefully that ratio will eventually work itself into uh, the industry, but it's taken a while. As far as women who have directed animated features, we all know each other. You know, I can sure. count us on less than two hands. And I've always felt like, you know, I spent a decade at Pixar, and that was probably my first experience in a big feature studio, and worked on Toy Story 1 and 2, Monsters Inc., Bugs Life, and started as an animator, became a storyboard artist, a visual development artist, a character designer, and designed Jessie the cowgirl. <laughs> We got to wear a lot of hats because the company was growing so fast and what I really appreciated about my training there is that story was so, so very important and I saw my friends there like Andrew Stanton, you know, start to write and direct his movies like Finding Nemo was his first one that he wrote and directed and wrote that because he had had a young son recently. and was a worried father and put again his own life into this and even as early as Toy Story days you know we'd sit around and talk in story and you know Andrew had a next-door neighbor who used to pull his toys apart and make you know hybrid toys out of them which worked its way into the movie John's minivan worked its way into the movie. I mean, these things are really we pull from our own lives. And I've learned storytelling from them, I think. And I've learned the power of tackling tough subject matter from them. And so I I learned a lot. And I've learned a lot. I worked at Sony Pictures Animation for seven years. I directed their first movie open season and executive produced the sequel open season two and then i was the director on hotel transylvania for a couple years before i came here worked on curious george for universal I've, i've i've worked as a story consultant for many companies so story has been my main thrust and i do feel like getting a chance to actually write and direct this movie was not just a great privilege, but it allowed me to have a vision on this film. And that may sound weird, but um, again, having friends of mine who've been writer directors, they've really encouraged me to take that up. And I understand why now, you know, on on a regular basis, you have to explain sequences to your crew. What is this about? What is this sequence? What is the core meaning of this sequence? What are we trying to get out of it? And when you've developed and written it, it's so much easier to do that, you know, you, you know what every, <laughs> why you put everything in there and so I really hope more women kind of take on that writing directing mantle, you know, I, I have so many friends that are fantastic writers, so it's not like I would ever not work with another writer again. I, I love that process.
1: This is amazing! This is impossible! Woo! Come on, Everest, make it go bigger! Woo! Let's also talk about the rooftop a minute. There were some really beautiful moments when she's playing her violin up there with the backdrop of the city. What was the mood you wanted to create in those moments? Right.
2: You know, because I have an animation background and I'm an artist, a lot of times when I start thinking of stories, I do sketches, and that's how my brain kind of wraps around these moments sometimes moments in movies come to you when you're not thinking about it (laughs) and that sounds weird but if you put your concentration on it too much sometimes the beautiful images don't come so a lot of times I'll just stop and push the computer away and take out my sketch pad and one of the things I kept sketching over and over again was Yee on the rooftop playing her violin in silhouette against the city lights and it was just something it was a romantic image that I saw and I always imagine like a camera sweeping around her, you know, going all uh, rotating around her. And so, you know, that was an important image for me in my head to have. I also think that, you know, the violin was an important instrument for me. I don't particularly play it. But what I love about violins are that they sound like a voice. You know, I play piano, but it doesn't sound necessarily like a voice in that kind of melodic way that when you bow, it almost sounds like someone singing a note. And I really wanted Yi to have a voice that's other than her own. And sometimes when you can't express things with your own voice, this gave her an outlet to express it in a different way. There is a delicate sequence in the movie where she's kind of saying her goodbyes to her dad. And I wrote that speech, I should say, and it was horrible, and I thought, this is just, these were early on thoughts, you know, I didn't wait till I got to that sequence to write it, but the violin, if you can imagine, when she plays that, she doesn't have to have words, and what's great about that is the audience themselves puts their own words into her playing, better than anything I could have written, and so... I think that's where the power comes from. This is like people can read their own words into it. Right. You know, it makes more powerful that way.
1: What advice would you give young women coming up in the business today?
2: I think I would tell young women to be confident in their storytelling skills. I think often when you're a minority within a a field like this, because women are still the minority within the creative side. I think on the on the production side, there's tons of women. There's a lot of women producers, you know, tons of women studio heads these days, I think even more than men, actually. But still on the creative sides, in storyboarding, in animating, in lighting, and writer-directing, women are still the minority. And I think the tendency is, you feel like you have to be more careful because if you do a wrong step, you're going to be judged more harshly when you're a a minority. That's what you feel like. Mm -hmm. But unless women really believe in their own voice and go out there boldly, they won't be heard. And so this is kind of one of those industries where you do have to be a little bit bold with your voice at times, you know, or you won't be heard. And I think a lot of women who are introverted stand away in the back. But I have to say, I know a lot of men who are introverts who are directors as well. You don't always have to have the same style of directing. You know, you can have a softer voice, but you do have to have a voice. (laughs) And do you wanna give a shout out to your casting crew? Absolutely. Of course I wanna give a shout out to my casting crew. This crew I have to say is, I feel like the luckiest person in the world. They are so incredibly talented. Um, We had 51 animators on this crew. I think we kind of got the best of the best from the studio. It was Dragon 3 came out right before us, and everyone jumped on that movie to finish it. And then for a short amount of time, I got all of those animators, and they were so enthusiastic about this movie down to the point where one of our lead animators, Ludo, who was the directing animator for the Yi character, started taking violin lessons just so that he would you know, specifically know how to, you know, bow the violin and how to play. We had a friend of mine, Charlene, who used to work here, come. She was a violinist. She taught the animators lessons. They were so great. Our head of animation was John Hill in that. Mark Edwards is our effects soup who is he and Max Boaz, who is our production designer are really responsible for the gorgeous look of this film another geeky thing to say is that we use the new proprietary software developed by DreamWorks called Moonray which also is responsible for the gorgeous look of this film. The Yeti's fur is so touchable, like the lush natural settings and the color palette, everything that we were able to just achieve was uh, because of some of this new software. And this team just embraced it, which is not always easy when you have a new set of software. Todd Wilderman, my co-director, has been such a great support. He jumped on board, loved this film, and we've worked together for over 20 years at different studios along the way. And then Suzanne Berge has been a great producer, she has been such a support and she's a musician and so this film really hit her hard I think in a a wonderful way. And then uh, Rupert Gregson-Williams is our composer and he was willing to come on this movie earlier than a normal composer because we had all this violin music that we needed. He also, he he may not want me to say this, but he is the voice of Everest humming. I made sure that he would be the voice of Everest. Yes. He, He wrote the theme. So I really wanted, when she played her violin, I wanted the Yeti to harmonize with her. And this is the bond between them. When she starts to play, it it pulls this magical hum out of him, you know, and that's what bonds these characters throughout the movie, really, is this music, and music is such a huge, important part of this. So when Rupert and I were working on the theme of this for her violin, he went back and was working on the harmony that would go with it and sent a sample of the violin with him humming along and it just gave all of us chills the first time we heard it in editorial. And so he said, Well I'll get somebody else to do the hum and I'm like, No, no, you're doing it. You have to do it. <laughs> but it just made the movie even more special that our own composer is in there, you know? And he just wrote a score that is so phenomenal. It's it's beyond what my expectations could have been it's complex it's beautiful it really partnered well with the look of this movie and the story a couple other people that were really important to this movie pam ziegenhagen was my lead editor. We spent countless weekends, (laughs) late nights together. She was fantastic. And also Enyo Torreson, who's our head of story and wrangled our entire story crew. And as well as just being a fantastic storyboard artist who boarded some of the most instrumental, powerful scenes in the movie, like the giant dandelion scene and our opening escape scene. And of course, you can't do these kind of giant movies in such a short amount of time without the support of the studio. So I can't speak enough to the support that Margie Cohen and Kristen Lowe have given me on this project, as well as the Pearl Studio side from Palin Chow and Frank Zo It's just been amazing to see them kind of come around me and give me kind of all the support I've needed to just make it through this film and to make it a successful film. So yeah, I just feel so lucky. I feel like if production wise, we really had 18 months to do this production, which in animation terms is crazy. It's such a short of amount of time. But because this team was so willing to kind of link arms, and they really, you know, loved the story and embraced it and got it you know, we would do test after test to make some of these magic set pieces really look good. And and I would tell them, okay, so this is the moment in the movie where people's breath is supposed to be taken away. And they're they're supposed to be in awe. And they might burst out laughing if we do it wrong. So, you know, let's just give it a shot. Okay. So, you know, we'd see test after test. And then finally, something would come through. And we'd all be like, yeah, we did it, you know. So, Well, there's some really challenging sequences. I mean, one that comes to mind is when you did the wave. So uh, you're talking about when Everest creates uh, giant waves on a field of canola flowers, yellow canola flowers, and they're trying to escape the villains. And so he hums and suddenly their boat goes off the water into this field of flowers and the flowers become waves. And so, again, this one was a huge challenge for us. And a lot of these magic set pieces we started over with a year out from the movie, like we we worked on them for an entire year. And we're lucky that we flagged the ones that needed full a full year. And they did. (laughs) Um, So that was definitely one of them. But again, these discussions are so fun, because you're sitting in a room of, you know, 4050 people going, you know, okay, so how are we going to make this look like waves? How are we going to get the foam of a wave breaking? I remember Max Boaz, our production designer, saying, like, what if some of the flowers came off so it was like the spray? What if we use some of the green stems underneath that tear away a little so you can get that carving of the boat so it looks like the boat's carving through the water? You know, we wanted the scale to look huge, so we started putting in things like telephone poles just so you can see like how giant that wave is as it's curling over the top of them. And again, just using weird things like a water simulation combined with flowers and seeing the process of how that worked. Jeff Busberg is our head of effects and he was so fantastic on all of these magic set pieces and just keeping at it, keeping at it, keeping at it till it looked just right. So, and, and if these were not believable, this film could be silly in a moment you know what i mean it could have gone terribly awry and so again i just thank this great crew for how much they just dug their heels in and never gave up you know they're the theme of the movie never give up (laughs) congratulations
1: on the film and thank you so much for joining us thank you i'm so happy to be here